0: All right, grab your Bibles, flip to Isaiah 49. We're gonna read Isaiah 49, verse 23. As we get back to our Ecclesiastical schematic series, just uh, this week and then we're going to uh, go back and finish it, uh, next week will be the final message in that we're gonna talk about cultural renewal and the relationship of the church between culture and building culture, impacting culture. Uh, but today we're gonna talk specifically about the relationship with church and state. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23. These are the words of God. Kings will be your guardians, and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Our Father in God, your word is more precious than fine gold. It's sweeter than the purest honey. And as we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace. So that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses. So that we cannot help but respond with wonder and faith. And trust through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this series, Ecclesiastical Schematics, has been my attempt at making sure that we as a church family understand the dynamics of worship and the obedience Christ calls us to as it pertains to being Christians in this visible body of Christ. This is a visible body of Christ. And my intention has been to lay out the blueprints of the church, lay out those blueprints on the table so that we can all see see what it is we're trying to build, making sure that we know that these foundational principles are there. Uh, and that helps keep this house in order. And that's what the Bible tells us to do in terms of ordering ourselves, organizing ourselves as a visible body. Uh, that is what we have in scripture, particularly Paul, who is adamant about the assembly of the church. In 1 Corinthians 14.40, he says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And the context is about corporate worship. He says earlier in verse 26 there of 1 Corinthians 14, when you assemble. So he says, when you assemble, these things are supposed to happen. And he clearly, he rounds out that chapter by saying it needs, what we do should be properly done and in an orderly manner. And I stated earlier on in the series, uh, I look back, I can't believe we started it like at the beginning of the summer, if I remember correctly. Time flies. But he, he when we, I mentioned this earlier, the inspiration for the title of the series comes from verse 40 there. Uh, the word properly in the LSB, and the ESV translates it as decently, but the word essentially gets to the idea that that which is done should be done in an orderly, sequential manner. Uh, That's why we don't just get together and it's a free-for-all. Paul is very clear and used very precise language about what we do in the church, here in worship, as the church, out in the world, is something that has a schematic to it. And that word, our English word schematics, comes from this Greek word in that text for the word properly. So when you, when you build a house, when you build something, you need a schematic. You need an orderly plan. You have to decide uh, how this is going to, to look. How, uh, how, you know, square, how much square footage are we talking about? Um, what is the foundation going to look like? What's it going to be made out of? How, how thick are the walls? How are we going to build this to withstand for the many years ahead? And of course the same goes for worship in God's church and what it is we're supposed to be doing when we gather and what it is we're supposed to be doing when we scatter. Now we have talked quite a bit about worship. We've talked about church music, biblical preaching, um, water baptism. We've talked about the Lord's supper. We've, we've talked about public prayer. We've talked about tithing. We've talked about a lot of things that surround, uh, what we do when we gather together. We've also considered the issue of church government, how we're supposed to be organized and who is qualified to lead said organizational efforts. Uh, We looked at Bible reading and the mission of the church as well. And so there's a lot of things that we've covered. And I, today though, I want us to consider the relationship between the church and the state. This is a largely debated. It's a hotly debated topic especially in our day, because what we are watching unfold around us is a failure of a godless classical liberalism worldview. Um, You had Christians early on, founding fathers who started this nation, and many of them were Christian. Um, Many of them had taken biblical principles and they had applied that, but you also have sort of a quasi John Locke, you know, worldview of classical liberalism that took root uh, and so now we're seeing what it looks like when morality caves, when morality goes away because of the religious underpinnings. What does society do? Well, it collapses. You have a failed state. Uh, you have, we've had seen failed states a lot in history. Um, and America is, unless its people do something, it's not really going to be any different. Now, the, the last message was the relationship between the church and the family. And so I figured, well, I didn't plan to do this. And I thought, well, we did church and family. We might as well do the other sphere, the state, too. We might as well look at the relationship there. What hath the cathedral to do with the magistrate? Um, What is the church itself an imperium, a heavenly empire? What does that imperium have to do with the imperiums of men? What does the empire of the kingdom have to do with the empires of men and what we call the state? What are the judicial boundaries that are in place? And remember that self-government is the foundation of the other spheres of government. Self-government is what God gives us as moral, thinking, rational beings who, are, who have a hearts that lead us in a certain direction, either towards sin right, or toward righteousness. Uh, but he's made us, and then we exist within these spheres. We exist as people in a family of some sort. We exist... Uh, as a church, and then we exist in, in, our na- in these nations, in the magisterial realm. So let's first look at Isaiah forty nine twenty three. there. The context of this verse is, is necessary to understand in order to interpret it properly. Jerusalem has offered a complaint. Um, God's people offered a complaint to God, and they felt like God had forsaken and forgotten all about them. That's in verse 14. However, God points out at the start of the chapter, at the beginning of chapter 50, God responds and says, well, actually, Israel is the one who has has forsaken God. They're the ones who have forgotten all about God. So usually, if you're prone to say, I feel like God has forgotten about me, well, actually, you're probably the one who has forgotten about God. That's typically how it works, because that's how self-deception works. But... Israel was punished because of their sins. They they weren't punished willy-nilly. They weren't punished because, well, God just felt like it. No, God chastens those he loves. He corrects them. He punishes them because of their sins. Yet, as we see toward the end of chapter 49, despite Israel's sins, despite their sins, God affirms his love for them. Despite our sins, God affirms his love for us in Christ. In verse 15, Yahweh's love is said to be stronger than the bond between a nursing mother and her infant. Quite visual language. In verse 16, Israel has been engraved in the palm of his hands. So there's a a covenantal unity here. In fact, God's promised love is so strong that in verses 19 through 21, he promises that he will destroy their enemies. And he will then regather his people back to Jerusalem. He will fill the land. That's verses 22 through 26. And finally, the the crescendo of this verse, uh, rather this chapter, God's people will be honored by all nations and all of their needs will be provided for. Now within this covenantal context, we have verse 23. And you need to know that this is a verse that the Puritans used quite a bit. Uh, Calvin loved this verse. Those who came in the Reformed tradition after Calvin, who died in late 1500s, even the early Puritans you know, right on the heels of, of Calvin and John Knox and Zwingli and many of them, the Puritans loved this verse, Isaiah 49, 23, because it gave us a definitive answer on what the relationship between the church and, and the state is supposed to be. What this verse means is that the Gentiles will be captured by God and this includes kings and queens. And so for our day, we want the White House. We want it captured for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, once that happens, we can maybe change some things, like the Constitution should probably say, we acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and therefore, this is how we will organize ourselves. You know, that's just you know, my own personal feeling about it. But nonetheless, Kings and queens are a part of this. Calvin says it this way. He says, Kings and queens shall supply everything that is necessary for nourishing the offspring of the church. Look at verse 23. Kings will be your guardians. The "you're there there is the people of God. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. Now what Isaiah promises is that when Christ is established as King and Lord of the earth, we know through his death, resurrection and ascension, the nations will come forth and acknowledge him to be their supreme king. We've already seen that in Isaiah 2, when the nations streamed to Zion to learn from God's law. So that's what the, the cultures are supposed to go to the church. They're supposed to go to the Christians and say, how do we function? How should we set this thing up? And mo- if, if, if somehow, in God's grace, the Lord saved Joe, Joe Biden and brought him to salvation. And he said, Hey, uh, we've done some things wrong here. I need some godly counsel. I need Christians, perhaps church leaders to come to the white house and, and tell us how we're supposed to function. Well, I'll tell you, most Christian leaders wouldn't know what to say. They would just say, well, that doesn't matter as long as you love Jesus. They wouldn't have blueprints. They would not even know what Isaiah 49-23, they didn't even, wouldn't even know that existed in their Bibles. But we need to be prepared for that for reasons we'll get into in a little bit. So the nations are going to come forward. The rulers will surrender themselves to his lordship. They will pay obeisance to him in honor and worship and service. Now, if you go through Isaiah, you can trace this vision, but especially in Isaiah 60, which maybe you, know, you could read that later, just read chapter 60. But Isaiah 60 promises in verse 3 that the Gentiles will come to the light of the gospel, which is shown in and through the church. So the, the Gentiles are going to come to the light of the gospel. We saw that early on in the book of Acts. Gentiles are brought in very early on after Pentecost. And then Isaiah 60 verse 11 promises that the kings will bring their wealth to the people of God as well. You think of a foretaste of that with Solomon. Remember, the queen of Sheba came to see for her own eyes, to see for herself. I've heard about Solomon. He's a wise king. I need to see this. And he goes, and immediately she's blown away by his wisdom. Now, that's what the nations are supposed to do with Christ. They're to come to him through the church, through the vehicle of God's people, and they're going to bring their wealth to God, and they're going to say, the humanistic way doesn't work. Right, People ask the question, when will there be peace in the Middle East? Well, not until they stop and realize that their job is to bring everything to Christ. That includes the nation of Israel. So the New Covenant Church will, and this is in Isaiah, suck the milk of nations and suck the bread of kings. Isaiah 60, verse 16. So as the gospel goes forth, kings and queens will be obedient to this newly established Lord. And yet... This obedience means that they will be brought into service of the king of kings. They will be, note what Isaiah says here in verse 23, guardians. Kings will be your guardians, meaning they will defend the church against all enemies. They're going to be guardians. Their job is to defend the church against all enemies. The princesses will be nurses, meaning that they will tend to the health and vitality of the Christian church. And so I hope this is so important, this, this conversation, because so many people they don't understand the relationship of church and state. The Christian vision for the civil magistrate isn't simply that they must be Christian. That goes without saying. We want Christian leaders who fear God and don't take bribes. Exodus gives us a lot of character qualifications for who we should have in positions of power like this. That's an obvious thing. And we used to have that early on in the 13 colonies. You had religious oaths and tests. You know, are you a member of a church in good standing? Yes. Do you believe in the triune God? Yes. You can't be a politician unless you affirm the lordship of Christ. That was a thing. And now it's, you know, if... (laughs) You don't even have to string a sentence together. You can, you can be elected out of Pennsylvania and show up in a jumpsuit, and you're fine. Now, instead of, instead of only being merely Christian, they must utilize their God-given authority, this is Calvin, empowered to defend the church and to promote the glory of God. That is what they are supposed to do. They are to defend the church and to promote the glory of God. That is Isaiah 49, 23. And this seems controversial today. I totally get that. But for most of Christian history, it really wasn't a controversy, especially when you study the history of England, for example. It wasn't controversial to say, your job as a king is to promote the welfare of the church. So leave us alone and do righteousness. And don't meddle with what we're doing, but don't you dare work against it. That was a normal thing for several hundred years following the Reformation. When we agree with Psalm 2 that the magistrates are to show insight, that they're to take warning and and they're to serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. When we agree with Psalm 2 that they're supposed to kiss the Son, they're to pay uh, their respect and obedience to Jesus, lest he become angry. When we agree with Psalm 2, cause it's in your Bible, you're sort of have to agree with it, right? At least if you want to be Orthodox. When we do that, we are suggesting that magistrates must bow before Christ and they must honor his law word. Isaiah promises that the civil magistrates will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. Meaning that the magistrates are to be submissive to the doctrines of the Christian church. And they must obey the word of the Lord. I would love to read that in Yunkin's office. I'll go to the governor's mansion in Richmond and, hey, can we have a conversation? Let's open up our Bibles. You say you fear God, let's test that. But alas, he refuses to respond to me via email. I'm a troubler of Israel. They too must be adorned with Christian doctrine and God fearing faith. Magistrates must be adorned with Christian doctrine and God-fearing faith. They must fear God, they must respect His Word, and they must see that the church flourishes. Their authority is from God. Never, ever, ever believe that a magistrate's authority derives from the Constitution primarily, or it's derived even from the consent of the people primarily. Their authority starts with God. God institutes this from front to back, and therefore, their job needs to be informed by God's word. As Calvin puts it, they are to yield to the doctrine of Christ. And he says, even in stronger terms, whosoever therefore rejects the ministry of the church and refuses to bear the yoke which God wishes to lay on His own hand, with His own hand on His all His people, can neither have any fellowship with Christ nor be a child of God. So if, if the magistrate is completely ignorant of the inner workings of, of a godly, biblical church, they have nothing to do with Christ. Even if they say and give lip service, they have proven otherwise. Flip to 1 Timothy chapter 2 in the New Testament. You get past Romans and Galatians, Ephesians, and the Thessalonian letters, and then you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, first of all, then, this is verse 1, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity it's it's good and acceptable we're not going to get into that but it's good and acceptable in the sight of of god our savior he desires all men to come to the knowledge of truth and so forth now i bring this verse to your attention because there is a universal scope to the church's responsibility in the world oftentimes we just eke through if i can just get through this work day if i can just get through this week and we sort of live that way. I just want to eke through. We we fail to see the magnitude of the scope of the church's work. We and that's when you just start you deprioritize you know fellowship with the saints. You deprioritize Lord's Day worship. You deprioritize all of these other things, and and just because you're just trying to get through. But there is a universal scope to the church's responsibility in the world, and Paul hones in on one aspect, and that is intercessory prayer. He says, verse 1, First, that petitions, prayers, and requests, and thanksgivings are to be made for all men. Prayer should never be a narrow exercise. Don't ever find yourself only just falling asleep at night. Lord, help me, because I'm a terrible person. Good night. (laughs) Lean on the righteousness of Christ, no doubt. (laughs) He is your righteousness. But it's not just to be a narrow exercise. It's a global exercise. You are supposed to pray for this world. Second thing, the same intercessory activity is meant for kings and authority too. So yes, we pray for all men. Pray, grab your prayer calendars, follow through every day. Pray for the people in this body. Pray for other Christians that you know. Pray for your families. Pray for your communities and all of that. But we also should be praying for kings and authority too. Now, the church's posture toward the state has a positive attitude and characteristic. Regardless of the magistrate's purity or corruption, and I would submit there's quite a bit of corruption these days, but regardless of that, whether they're doing well or bad, we are to pray for the affairs of our nation. We should be praying for leaders locally and at the state level, uh, you know, county level, Federally, we, we should be praying. And whether it's Constantine or Nero, I trust me, I want that Constantine. Whatever it is, we pray. And oftentimes, we either pray against them, God would either strike them with pestilence until they repent, or remove them and put up, give us a Constantine, right? That's what we want. We want to pray for them, though. And the words that Paul chooses are very interesting. Our petitions mean that we make very specific requests and needs known to God. When you're praying, it's okay to be, be very, very specific. Whether it's a, a prayer of imprecation where you're saying, God, I pray that you would just eliminate this evil man, right? Rhymes with douchy. So <laughs> get, God, bring him to repentance or strike him dead like he had done other kings, right? Just it's okay to pray that way. God wants us to pray. And he wants those requests to be very specific. So kids, never hesitate to pray something very specific. Um, you know, Just make sure that if you're asking for a pony or something that you also are repenting. Um, our prayers, he says petitions there, prayers mean that we bring those people before God. When you're praying for somebody in our church with the calendar, you're saying, God, I, I bring this person before you. I intercede on their behalf. You know their needs. Would you meet them? And bring them with you to the Lord. That's the idea of prayers here. Paul says, petitions, prayers, requests. Requests are bold appeals on their behalf. Bold appeals. Father, I pray for this person. They're looking for a job. Would you grant them this? Would you give them what you have for them? And be bold about it. Tell them... Lord, please bless them richly in this area. Give them a, not just a job, but a great job. Whatever it is, be bold. And then thanksgivings are the, the fourth thing he says there. Thanksgivings speak of our gratitude that we have for others. These prayers are other-centered. There's a time and a place to pray for your needs and ask God, right, to give us our daily bread, though. It's us. It's God's people. We're asking together and we're bringing those prayers to God. It's other oriented. And of course, he says in verse two, the the purpose of these appeals is so that we might lead tranquil, peaceful, and quiet lives. We want God to intervene in the affairs of civil government so that the peace Christ gives us as King and Lord would be manifest in all spheres of life. We want, as the church, very, very basic things. We're not that demanding. What do we want? We want godliness and dignity. We want respectful and holy living. That's why, you know, what do we ask, what do we want the federal government to do? Just be quiet and sit down and leave us alone and let us live peaceful, quiet lives. But when you rage against Christ, that's what you get, right? Disordered states run by despots produce nothing but strife and consternation. That's what they do. But ordered nations that are in covenant with Christ produce stillness Peace and rest. Proverbs twenty-nine two is not ambiguous. When the righteous increase, the people are glad, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. Anybody groan lately? And the point I want to make with this passage is simply that the Christian church is the cultivator of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. The Christian church is the cultivator of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world, not the state we are the ones charged with that to cultivate truth to cultivate goodness to cultivate beauty and the magistrate as we'll see has no business in forcing morality rather they are to guard morality there's a difference they do not force morality they guard morality and it's the preaching of the gospel the intercessory prayers of the church through the vehicle of the church that brings order to the rest of the world and I'll come back to that shortly, and I'm going to go a different direction with it, Lord willing, next week. So, how shall we then live? John Owen preaching to Parliament on October 13th, 1652. So, October 13th, 1652, it was known as a day of solemn humiliation. John Owen preached to Parliament, and he urged the magistrates by saying this He said, Some think if you were all settled, you ought not in anything as rulers of this nations to put forth your power for the interest of Christ. Did you catch that? Some He's telling these leaders in parliament, some of you think that you're not supposed to put your interest in Christ, put forth uh, your power for the interest of Christ. Owen said to them, the good Lord keep your hearts from that apprehension. Even in 1652, they believed that, well, the state shouldn't really deal with Christianity and, and Owen's preaching to them and says, no, no, you, you're supposed to do this. Owen would go on to say that in that same sermon to the magistrates, I want to preach in Congress someday. This is essentially what he was doing. To give you context, he's basically in Congress preaching to the magistrates. And he says this, Take no more disturbing counsel with yourselves or others. Renew your old frame of humble dependence on God, and earnest seeking his face. If once it comes to that, that you shall say you have nothing to do with religion as rulers of the nation, God will quickly manifest that he hath nothing to do with you as rulers of the nation. Now, Owen's very lengthy sermon, you can read it in his works, volume 8, Owen was quite prolific in writing, but Owen's message is an example of what it is God requires of the church in its relationship to the state. What exactly do I mean? Both church and state are God-ordained institutions. They're God-ordained institutions, and I, I don't like the word state, frankly. I think it has like a humanist bent, but I'm using it as a shorthand for civil magistrate. So it's, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong if you say it, but it kind of... It sort of reeks of centralized, bureaucratic red tape, right? But its I'm just using it as shorthand. But according to Romans 13, the civil magistrate is a minister of God. He's a servant or deacon of God. He is to be God's minister for good. And he does that by punishing evil, not righteousness. He's supposed to punish evil. And one of the main functions of the magistrate is punishing in punishing evil and rewarding good, one of the main functions is preventing encroachment upon the God-given liberties and rights of those under his watch. I remember a few years ago we moved here and went to the county fair and there was a gentleman running for sheriff and I asked him, hey, where do our rights come from? And he totally was just taken off guard by that. He had no idea I said, it's not a trick question. Like, where do our rights come from? It's very basic. You know, I didn't ask him, what is section 6.8, you know, whatever. It was very basic. And, and he just fumbled on it. Because you can tell your statist if you think your rights come from DC. And I said, well, our rights come from God. And I, th- I, don't I don't know, I don't know whatever happened to him. I couldn't even tell you his name, I don't remember now, but this was like six years ago. Whatever it was, um, they, people do think that the state gives you rights. That's what people are prone to think. Um, but that's nonsense. Their job is to prevent encroachment on what God gives people, all right? So if God gives us life and liberty and property later changed to pursuit of happiness, if, if, if God gives us those things, that's not anything any man can take from you. And if they do try to take it from you, then the magistrate's job is to put an end to it. So we've gotten you know, bureaucratically bloated today, and so people don't even have these basic presuppositions in line. As someone who's directly responsible to God, the magistrate is to rule in the fear of the Lord. He is a man that's under obligation. He is obligated to discharge the magistracy in terms of God's holy law word. He is to look at the Bible and say, what does God demand of me as a magistrate? And Rushduni says it this way. He says, if dominion, authority, and rule come from God by his ordination and can only be truly exercised in terms of his law word and his grace, then any departure from God's word and the doctrines thereof is dangerous to man and society. If we depart from that basic assumption that magistrates have an authority from God, if we sever that and say, well, no, they can just do their own thing and the church will just do our own thing. And then we can pretend to be at peace. That's what we've done in America. You have invited catastrophe on your nation, if you do that. There is a separation of church and state in terms of jurisdiction and responsibility. However, there is no such thing as a separation of state and God or state and God's word. The magistracy is a covenantal institution which serves a very basic function. He is a man bound by God through an oath to use the scripture as a guide in his governance. The magistrate must protect the church from encroachment. That is what Isaiah is telling us. They must prevent any encroachment to come upon the church, seeing to it that she is nurtured and healthy. They must not, however, seek the dissolution and disintegration of the church. And you guys got to see a trial run. We got to see a trial run during COVID. All of that was, was this jumbled up. Most people not even realizing, well, if the government says uh, we better do it. I used that analogy in, in North Dakota when I was there. Well, if the government says cover yourself in mustard and dance in the streets, should you? Okay, then. If they say stay home, love your neighbor, you say, mm, that's not what the Bible tells me. Jesus went to the sick, to the infirm, he was a servant. That's wrong. <laughs> But we failed that test by and large. I think a lot of churches have repented since then. Praise be to God. But both church and state are bound by oath to promote the interests of Christ's kingdom. It's not enough to just say, we hope that the president will be a Christian. No, they are bound by oath to promote the interests of Christ's kingdom. They must promote it. For example, think of it this way. The church is central to the town square. That's why old towns we see that a lot, at least on the East Coast. We see old towns, what's at the center? Usually a church with a huge steeple. That was the tallest building. That was the frame of reference architecturally, which obviously is a theological principle too. Though it is central, it's, it's jurisdictionally unique in what it does. The church, you know, the, the local town isn't supposed to get swallowed up and consumed by the church. We call that an ecclesiocracy. The church isn't the ones. They don't, we don't have the power of the sword. The state does. But instead, they're supposed to work together in their respective spheres, and they work together in order to propagate the, the flourishing of men in the law and the gospel of God. So the church is in charged with the preaching of the gospel, the sacraments. They're charged with teaching sound doctrine. The state, though, does not do those things, but they are to guard those things. So the the covenant is to be upheld and honored by church and state. And obviously, you know, obviously the state isn't, they don't possess those sacraments. As I said, they belong to the church. But there is one sense in which the church has primacy that the state does not have. Remember I said with the family, the church has a primacy that the family doesn't have because there is no family in eternity. There's no marriage in eternity. That's, that's a now. That's what you might call a natural institution. But the church lasts forever. And the same goes for the state. The church's task is preaching the whole counsel of God. And this includes proclaiming and teaching the whole counsel of God in every area of life. In other words, the church is supposed to teach the magistrate what it is God requires of them. If the magistrate goes sideways, and starts to swerve outside of its lane, you know, something like what's going on today at every single level of government. If that happens, it's incumbent upon the church to prophetically deal with the state, exposing their error and calling for their repentance. And there are innumerable examples in scripture. The most obvious one, the most readily available one, is when John the Baptist confronted Herod and said it was wrong for him, it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife. He had taken Philip's wife And John the Baptist said, that's wrong. And what happened to John the Baptist? (laughs) So Chesterton said this well, and I've always appreciated this quote. We should want politicians so close that we can kick them. We want them so close that we can kick them. Uh, And and, and there's just no reason why the church hasn't come together. I mean, I know there are reasons why that hasn't happened, but to come together and offer up a prophetic voice um, against, against the state when they go off the rails. Thus, all that said, the church has a, di- a didactic function, a teaching function. It teaches the whole counsel of God, but it, it doesn't replace what a particular counsel might teach. Uh, for example, think of it this way, the church will teach about being godly fathers and mothers. Um, itself, though, the church doesn't become fathers and mothers for you. Uh, the church the, the church teaches the magistrate its proper role but it doesn't become the state it's not its lane so we should like you know if young can really love the lord he'd have a bible study and we would come in and tell him what he's supposed to do as governor and and i would say well very little i, I you should just maybe go take a nap you know it's better if you're not doing anything really because you're going to break it but that's how it should be. It's, our lane is prophetic reorientation. We are to reorient the culture and the state prophetically. We speak to it. We teach it. We get the word out. We talk to people about Scripture and its demands. And because the church has been charged with teaching and declaring the whole counsel of God in every area of life, it follows then that the church has a prophetic priority, we might say, and ascendancy in culture. And that's for the simple fact that one, the church is eternal and two, the church has possession of word and sacrament. Now, judicially speaking, the state possesses the steel sword in order to punish evil. So we want evil doers to be punished. And what we see happening in our culture is that's not the case. In fact, evil doers are generally rewarded. Um, you, can, you can have a march and burn down a U.S. city and no one's arrested. But when you're invited into the Capitol, suddenly we have J6ers in jail for a long, long time who did nothing violent at all. When the righteous increase, people are happy. But when the wicked increase, the people groan. But the church the, the state has a steel sword and it's supposed to punish evildoers. It's supposed to look at the law of God and the word of God and say, this is evil, it must not be done. Uh, same thing with some of our friends who were just uh, went through trial and thrown in, in jail and awaiting their, uh, as far as their sentencing is concerned. These are people who, who helped try to stop the murder of infants, didn't violently go after anybody, But suddenly, because of this immoral face act that exists in our nation, they protected the wicked doctors who continue to butcher children while throwing good men and women in jail. That's opposite of what it's supposed to be. But the church, we do have a scriptural sword, and we bind and loose. Both state and church has judicial power. Both have the power to deal with sin. One has the deal with crimes, but Of course, we have the death penalty for the state, but for the church, we have excommunication. And yet the church has primacy. Why does the church have a primacy in culture? It's because the church is where the glory of Jesus Christ rests. We, the church, the bride of Christ, are the glory of the glory, Ephesians teaches us. The state possesses no such glory. And what we need to do today is remember the promise of Revelation 11.15. Revelation 11.15 says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's past tense. It has become. It's already a judicial reality in the world. Christ has taken the nations by the oath of his own blood, and not, now the church marches forth teaching the whole counsel of God. We, we march forth in victory. And there's an obligation to proclaim the entirety of God's word in the culture we find ourselves in. We are to bring scripture's claims to bear everywhere in every department of life, especially when it comes to the civil magistrate. I can't believe how hard it is for me to get a hold of my representative here locally. To just have a few minutes. I got a bill of abolition. I would like to talk to you about it cannot get a meeting so i'm gonna force it i'm i'm just gonna to have to do i'm gonna to have to do it you know you, you have office hours great i'll just pop in forget the appointment i tried to be nice but we we have to take these claims and we have to push it there it has to be pushed there And the reason things are the way that they are is because the church has been utterly unfaithful in this area. She's been unfaithful because she's been unbelieving. Daniel 5.21 is not unclear. The Most High God is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and that he sets up over it whomever he wishes. Wicked rulers are a sign of judgment. And since we have not yet repented for our multitudinous sins we are not yet ready to reap the blessing of God's magnificent power. Not until we declare the entire council of God, boldly telling politicians what God demands of them, not until we do that will we receive God's blessing. And the Bible is abundantly clear, and I hope and pray all of you are as clear on this. All kings and nations are bound by God, and thus they are obligated to God. And never never relent on that demand if if we continue to stand idly by should we be surprised when Moloch rises up we must love the gospel in order to declare the gospel and we must be captured by the gospel in order to do the hard work of repentance and calling others to repentance the nations do belong to Christ and it's our great task to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And it is a glorious task. And it is a hard task. And many shy away from it today. Many shy away from it. The task to teach forgiveness of sins. To, to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ. And his great work on the cross and resurrection. We get to do this. This is our job. And we must do it. I'm going to leave you with Owen's Owens final words in a very lengthy sermon to the Parliament on October thirteenth, 1652. He said, Know them, then, that are faithful and quiet in the land. Regard the truth of the gospel. Remember the days of old. What hath done you good, quieted your heart in distress, crowned your undertakings with sweetness. Lose not your first love. Draw not out your own thoughts for the counsel of God. Right? Don't go to the Bible. Don't just draw it out of yourself because you don't have anything to give. Seek not great things for yourselves. Be not moved at the lusts of men. Keep peace what in you lieth with all that fear the Lord. Let the glory of Christ be the end of all your undertakings what a message what a message to declare let's pray Father in heaven we are grateful for your work in the world we thank you that you've called us to this task and we know and, and believe fully that this is a task that requires everything you have called us to take up our crosses and, and follow you and and Lord, we have not always done a good job of that. And I pray that you would strengthen your church for this mission. That this word that's proclaimed, that the truth of Scripture would abide in us deeply, penetrating the innermost parts of our hearts and minds, so that we might live under your glory. And I pray that you would begin a new work here in Warrington. Help us as we teach and preach all of Christ for all of life, May your glory be on display. And may those kings and queens who do not bow before you, may they fear you. May they find themselves at an impasse. Quit or repent. As we press these crown rights into every area of life, I pray, Lord, that you would magnify your Son. Not to us, O Lord, but to you is the glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen.